We are going to be in 1 Peter as we have been over the last few weeks. And this is, this is the last of our, of our sermons in this sermon series that we've been in. And I'll say we've been trying to answer this question. How do we live as Christians in a secular and divided culture? And that's not an easy question to answer. I really have, have tried and been praying that God would help us say what he says because there's so many voices out there right now. If you were to ask a hundred people, what should Christians be doing right now in our culture? You might get a hundred different answers, but God has things that he says. And so to be able to go back and say, okay, God, what do you say? Who do you say we should be has been such an important question. And I realize, like we probably don't agree on everything, but what I appreciate about our church and this congregation is the conversation. I think godly conversation makes us better, even at points where we don't necessarily fully agree. And so I appreciate your willingness to participate in the conversation. And I hope it doesn't stop here. I hope we keep going. As always, at the end of our service, we're going to do a little bit of a question and answer time. And so you can text your questions to this number that's up on the screen. They're anonymous. We really don't know who they're coming from. Uh, We just get the questions and that's really helpful. So on this last topic, uh, Pastor Rick Uh, Pastor Rick, who's our pastor in Burlington, he texted me this morning and he said, the questions are already coming in. And that was like, it's like seven this morning. Uh, So some people are waiting for this topic and we'll, we'll jump into it. Here's the, here's the truth, right? Here's the truth. There's something inside of us from the time that we're born. And I have a, a sneaky suspicion it has to do with the brokenness that we all have because sin's a reality in our world. But there's this thing that's inside of all of us when we're born that we don't really much like anyone telling us what to do. In fact, yesterday, uh, I had my three-year-old Nora with me. And I spend much of my time with Nora Uh, trying to convince her that watching the iPad is not what we can do uh, 20 hours a day. I think left on her own device, she would watch the iPad as as much as we would physically let her or until the battery died. But we have to tell her. We put boundaries on the iPad time. We can't watch that all the time. But yesterday, I needed like 15 minutes of quiet. I need to, and I said, I know, I know what, how I can get 15 minutes of quiet. And so I went to her and I said, Nora, I want you to watch the iPad. And do you know what she said back to me? This is literally her favorite activity in the world. She said, no, I don't want to watch the iPad. And I said, there's no possible way that's true. There's no possible way that you don't want to watch this screen. And I need like 10 minutes. So please watch it. No, I don't want to watch it. And there's something inside of us, isn't there, that exists when we're that young and it kind of never goes away. That even if someone is telling us to do something that is an okay thing, sometimes we just don't like people telling us what to do. And the question that Peter's going to deal with today and the question that we're going to deal with is how do you act and how do you behave and what do we do when A person in charge is not just only telling us what to do, which we don't much like. But what do we do as Christians when that person in charge is telling us to do things that God says not to do? What do you do when you have convictions? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, there's those core truths 
But then there's convictions that we have as Christians. Some of those are different individual to individual. What do you do when someone comes along who's in power and authority and tells you you have to break those? That's the big question. That's a tough question. And we've been asking this question throughout the last couple of weeks. Who are we supposed to be in a secular and divided culture? And we've said that there's really four responses that we can see. And there's one of those four that God really calls us to. That we see some people give in to hopeless compromise and they stop doing what God wants them to do and just do what everyone else is doing because that's easier. That some people retreat into fearful isolation that rather than saying, hey, this is my home and I'm, I'm going to live differently among people, we retreat so that people can't touch us and people can't make us bad and we are scared and fearful of the culture around us. Some people engage in restless revolt and there's this idea that we're just going to change everybody and if we have to do it by force and strength and power, we'll get it done. But we've been saying over the past few weeks that we really believe that God calls us to something different, which we're calling faithful engagement, meaning we don't compromise what God says to do, but that we engage the people around us in the way that God calls us to engage. And we've said a lot over the past few weeks that I cannot go back and, and say in this moment, but we've been using 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, as the verse that, that we're really centering on and is giving us our topics each week. And in that verse, Peter gives us these four things. He says, if you really want to live the way God's calling you to live, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. And I think throughout the past five weeks, uh, we've been waiting for this final one to light up orange. So here it is. We're talking today about what does Peter mean when he says to honor the emperor. It's a tough phrase when you think about Peter's culture and the people to whom Peter is writing. We have to think first century Roman Empire trying to live the way that Christians should live. I don't know what you know about the Roman emperors, maybe you can think back to your Western civilization class that you took in high school, or probably most of us think back to whatever Netflix or, or whatever series you watched about the Roman Empire. That's how we're learning about the Roman Empire. But we can all agree, right, that the Roman emperors were not necessarily God-fearing uh, moral people in their leadership style. In fact, when, Paul, when Peter writes this letter, the emperor is Nero. Some of you like to go to his cafe and drink the coffee these days, but the emperor at the time is Nero. Nero's not a good guy. He's not a good guy at all. In fact, the historians tell us that he kicked his pregnant wife to death. He had his own mother killed. He would, the historians argue at whether or not uh, this is, that persecution of Christians is full-fledged at the point Peter's writing. But whether or not it's full-fledged at this point, eventually Nero is going to very severely and harshly persecute Christians. In fact, historians of the time say that Nero is actually directly involved in Peter's death. And Peter looks at that guy 
And he also looks at governors that are ruling in the time we're going to see, one of which is Pontius Pilate, who is the governor who allows Jesus to be crucified. And so Peter is looking up at the Emperor Nero, and he's looking at governors in the area, of which that includes Pontius Pilate, the one that let Jesus be crucified. And he says to the early Christians, and he says to you and me, honor those guys. How in the world can Peter say that? And what does he mean? That's what we want to talk about over the next few minutes. If you look at your Bible, if you have it with you or the words will be up on the screen, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. And see what Peter says to us as we ourselves try to struggle with what does it mean to do what God says to do in a culture that sometimes almost requires us to go against it. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. What does it mean to honor the emperor? And I think it's important to point out that Peter actually says in these verses, any human institution. So he's not just talking about the emperor. He's also mentions governors here, but he says that phrase, any human institution. So he could be talking about, he talks about servants with masters in this text. He could be talking about your boss at work that is difficult to work with sometimes. He could be talking about any sense, your professor in your classroom, your teacher in your classroom, any of these institutions where you are dealing with authority above you. How is it that you and I are supposed to live? So I think it's important to recognize that word emperor could mean more than just the emperor of Rome or the head of a country. Here's what we want to make clear right at the beginning. Honor the emperor does not mean do everything he says to do. That's not what honor the emperor means. Honor the emperor does not mean do everything he says to do. In fact, I want to just be very clear for us at the beginning. You should always do what God says to do. You and I should always do what God says to do. In fact, this is, I think, Peter's message in these verses. Even as he's saying to honor every human institution, he also says you need to live free. Free as subjects to God. And so he reminds us, he reminds us that God is the one who grants authority to leaders and Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 13, if you'd like to read it. That God is the one who grants that authority. And that we ought to recognize that anyone who has authority in our world in some ways has been allowed to have that authority by God. Now that can be a challenging thing to think through. Because that means God has allowed some people that are pretty terrible to gain authority throughout the years. But even Jesus standing in front of Pilate, do you remember the exchange? Have you read it before? If not, it's in John chapter 19. Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, don't you realize I have the authority to kill you or let you go? And Jesus says back to him, 
you would have no authority if it had not been given to you by God. And even Jesus in that moment recognizes this dynamic that we are ultimately subject to God and that actually frees us up to live the way that God calls us to live. So honoring the emperor does not mean we do everything that the emperor should do. It says to do. You should always do what God says to do. And Peter in his life actually demonstrates this for us in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles, they're out. This is the, in the early church right after Jesus is, is taken back up to heaven. They're out and they're preaching the gospel. And right away in Acts chapter 5, they're called before for a group called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, which is a religious body, says to them, you can no longer preach in this name. You can no longer be in our communities talking about Jesus. And the text says in verse 29 of Acts chapter 5, but Peter, the author of our book here, and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Here's the challenge, which Peter is facing right in this passage. If you and I decide that we're going to do what God says, even when people in authority around us tell us we need to do something different, it's going to bring about some sort of suffering. I said last week, I think that it's going to be continually harder to be a Christian in our culture than easier I just think that's a reality. And so that means if we're going to do what God says to do, there's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. And in some cases, there's actually going to be some sort of, of suffering. I know I talked to public school teachers in our, in our church congregations who feel like there's parts of the curriculum in the public school that they don't know if they can teach or initiatives within the classrooms that they don't know if they can participate in. But there's this tension, right? You might lose your job. It's a very real possibility. I was talking with, with uh, a couple, not talking with, but I heard of a couple people uh, that I know through other people that right now are in the military. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago that that I think that convictions are an important thing in the Christian walk, that people, good Christians disagree on, on different issues. And these two people happen to, to want to wait, at least at this point, feel like God's calling them to wait to get the vaccine. And one of them has been in the military for 16 years. One of them is in the academy right now in Colorado, the Air Force Academy. Both of them are pretty sure that this could cost them their positions. In your company, HR comes out with initiatives and you have to ask yourself, how do I maintain what I think that Christ, God says about certain things and yet do what they're asking me to do in the midst of my workplace? I feel these are not just things that might happen one day. These are things that are happening today. And as we continue to go, it's just going to continue to happen that as we continue, if you continue to do what God says to do, there are going to be moments in your life where that creates tension and conflict. And at some points, like it did for these early Christians, even suffering. 
So I think what Peter's helping with us here, us, us with here, is not to ask, answer the question, how do we avoid suffering? I feel like in that hopeless compromise or fearful isolation or reckless revolt that in all of these, there's this feeling, well, I don't want to have to suffer for this. So I'll either give in and do what other people are doing or we'll hide in our own little community or we'll just try to change everything so that we don't have to suffer. But I don't think Peter is trying to give us a manual as how to get out of this. I think Peter is saying to us, this is going to be a reality. So what do you do? Honoring the emperor doesn't mean just do what the emperor says. You should always do what God says. But honoring the emperor does mean this. Honoring the emperor means that when you do what God says to do instead of what the emperor says to do, that you do it in a cross-shaped way. That when you do what God says to do instead of what the emperor says to do, that you do it in a cross-shaped way. And Peter, in the, in the next section of verses in this chapter, tells us exactly what that looks like. Verse 19. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Who wants to suffer unjustly? And yet Peter tells us it's a gracious thing when this happens. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was, de was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is saying that there is a way to show honor, even when we disagree or have to disobey. And he says to us in these verses that when you do it in a way that honors the people who are in charge, you are actually like Christ. And he also says in these verses that there is no more powerful witness to the truth of the gospel. And there is nothing that opens up the doors of people's hearts than people who are willing to suffer for what they believe, but to do it in a respectful and honoring way. And he says to us, you've been called to this. I mean, how amazing is that? You've actually been called to this. And Jesus sets an example for us, he says in these verses, so that you and I might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, he did not, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, the scriptures say to honor your parents, honor your father and mother. The scriptures don't really give us an out if you have a terrible father and mother. There's a way to have a terrible father and mother 
to actually have to go against them because they would want you to do things that God doesn't want you to do and still show them honor, the scripture would tell us. It's not an easy thing. That's a hard thing. And it's the same thing with those in authority, Peter is saying to us. That they may not honor God. They, you, there may become a point where you have to do what God says to do over what they said to do. But how you go about doing it is so key, Peter says. That's what it means to honor. Is to do it in a cross-shaped way. I was trying to think of an example of this in our modern context. I think in the Old Testament, we have a number of great examples in the Old Testament. We could look for Joseph, Joseph who was prisoned, imprisoned wrongly and yet still respects the Pharaoh enough that he ends up being the number two and God saves the Israelites through Joseph. We could look at Esther who took a huge risk walking into the king's presence without being summoned. That is a big, uh, big moment of almost defiance for her to do that in that moment. And yet she did it because it was God was calling her to do it. And she showed honor and respect to King Xerxes in that moment. And God worked through her. We go to Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego or so many options, so many places where people stood up for what God called them to do, but yet did it in a way that honored and respected the person who was in charge. As I thought about this, I was reminded of, I think I've said before from the stage, that over the last 20 months, one of the documents that I read that has stuck with me, and I cannot believe I got this far in my life and never read it before, was Martin, is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. And I'll say it again. If you've never read it, you need to read it. It's such a good example of what it looks like to respond in a God-honoring way. If you're not aware of what's happening at the moment, Martin Luther King Jr. was in Birmingham, Alabama for some nonviolent protests and eight religious leaders in the community uh, had him made sure that he was arrested and they, he was put in jail for leading these, these nonviolent protests. And, and then they issued a statement and issued a statement warning the people of the city against these unruly and unwise gatherings. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., as he's in the jail, he pens this letter. And this is the opening line. Just think about who he's writing to. He's writing directly to the eight white religious leaders that have put him in jail. And this is what he says. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling my present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer, I love this line. If I sought to answer all the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would have little time for anything other than such correspondence in the course of the day. And I would have no time for constructive work. But listen to this line. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and that your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I want to try to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. See, honor doesn't necessarily mean doing exactly what the person in charge tells you you should be doing. If God's telling you to be a part of this movement, then you can't just listen to the people in charge and not do it. But honor and respect 
keeps the door open for God to move. And I think as Christians living in this time, we ought to pause and consider what Peter is saying to us and consider what it looks like for us to not necessarily do what those in charge are saying to do, but to do what God says to do. And yet to do it in a way that offers honor and respect to those in charge, to do it in a cross-shaped way, the way that Christ did. I'm going to leave it there for right now and ask you to consider in your life, are you doing what God says to do over what those in charge are saying to do? It's really easy right now to go into either hopeless compromise or fearful isolation. And so are you living first subject to God and doing what he says to do, regardless of what culture or someone in charge says to do? And secondly, are you finding ways to do it in a way that is honoring and respectful, especially when you're hiding behind a computer screen? Are you finding ways to do it? Peter tells us doing it that way keeps the door open to the gospel. It maintains our position as the city on the hill that Christ calls us to. It maintains our position as the light into the darkness. So are we doing those things? Are we responding in a cross-shaped way? I'm going to invite Andrew, a barbarian, up to the front, and we're going to have a little bit of a panel discussion. Some of the recordings of our, of our weekly panel discussions are already on our website, if you've seen them, or if you get our loop uh, email on Tuesdays as pastors, we've been taking some of your questions and we've been continuing to talk more about them. Uh, and so here we are to talk more about this topic. And my guess is there's a lot of good questions. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to not ask the tough questions. Uh, because you think we don't want to, ha to hear them. I would love to hear some of your questions. So if you have that, if you want to text that number, we'll talk more about this and what it practically means. How you doing, Andrew? Doing well. How are I you? like your tie. Thank you. I didn't know. I told Andrew, if we're going to start wearing ties, he's got to let me know. We can't just go from no ties for years to ties. It was a game time decision. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, well, we've already had, so as Brian said, we've had some questions even from early this morning. Uh, coming through, and I think it, it's kind of reflective that this is a uh, a challenging tension that's very present in the minds of of a lot of people. Um, and so I, I wanted to um, start just by thinking about our government. Right, we live in this democratic society, and uh, there are several questions about what what do we as the church, or, or even just me as a follower. Do, like, how do we operate within that context of government? Um, and I know you have some thoughts there. Why don't you share? Well, that's one big difference between the first century and our, and our time, right? And I know that I, I, I'm very aware, and I've said this other weeks, when we do this panel, that there's some awesome ideas out here. My hope is, is that we'll come at 9 o'clock for bagels and coffee in the fellowship hall, that you'll stay for lunch next week, and we'll continue to have these good discussions. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you some of the things that I've been thinking about and, and reading about. One big difference between first century Roman Christians or Christians living in Rome in our day today is there was no real opportunity to influence Roman government and Senate, whereas we live in a representative republic and we have the opportunity 
to, to do things and to, and to have influence and authority. There's a lot here, but I'll just say, I'll say this. I think one of the things that is really important for us to remember as Christians is that as Christians, we need to go out and have influence in our culture, wherever we have that. So when I walk into the voting booth, I vote as a Christian. Uh, and God calls Christians into politics, and that's a fantastic thing. Who isn't thankful for William Wilberforce, who allowed his Christian conviction to, enslave, to help end slavery in, in, in England? That's a beautiful thing, that there would be Christian politicians. However, it is not the role of the church to establish a Christian nation. The church has a very unique role. And this, I think, is really important because we sometimes want our Christian politicians to become our pastors and we want our Christian pastors to become our politicians. And they have very different roles. And I think it's really important that we keep them separate. The church has to be in a place where the church can say, what about God, regardless of who's in charge? Regardless of, what, of, of a party or who's elected, the church has to be in a place where our goal is to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to make disciples of all nations. And we have to be in a place with no matter who's, no matter who's in charge in, in a culture or in a nation, there's going to be brokenness there because there's people involved. So there's sin involved. And the church has to be in a position where the church can point and say, hey, what about God in that situation? We affirm this. Regardless of the party, that's a good thing. That's God's thing. But we don't affirm this regardless of party. That's not God's thing. And if the church gets so enmeshed in it, they, the church actually starts to lose its voice because it can no longer call out the places of whatever, whatever leader or party it's enmeshed in. Uh, it starts to lose its voice in that way. And so I think it's really important to remember that God calls Christians into politics and that we as individuals should influence as we can. But our churches have a much bigger mission, building the kingdom of God. Yeah. And if you look through the context of scripture, God, God doesn't use religious institutions to further the kingdom work that he's doing. You know, he, he says, you'll be my people and I'll be your God. And the Israelites say, no, we want a king. And, and God gives it to him as a concession. Like government was a concession God just wanted it to be you and me. And we think uh, sometimes we, we get those switched around. And so I think that it's important for us to think about how we can, like, wh what are the things that we have to abstain from or have to take a step back from so that we have the position uh, or the vantage point to be able to, to look, see clearly both sides and to talk sincerely to both sides. Um, and it's a, it's a messy thing. It, it is. It's a messy it thing. certainly is. And I think when we, when we stop making it messy, we actually get out of where God wants us to be. Right. And, and this is, I think, a question that just came in that would really, I think, help bring some clarity to people because um, we, you mentioned convictions and convictions being the thing that sometimes will, will lead us to not do what the emperor says in order that we might do what God is saying to us. And I think it's very important as followers of Jesus for us to be able to uh, have 
a certain level of reliability in those convictions. And so maybe you can talk just for a moment, how can we as followers of Jesus test our convictions and, and figure out whether or not they're really reliable or, and whether or not they're, they're from God or based in scripture, or if they're, they're something that maybe God is not actually saying to us. How do we test our convictions? Yeah. Is that, is that the that's question? The, that's the heart of it. I think, um, I think it's a really good question. Challenging things is that there's, there's things that happen in our culture that there's no one-to-one -one correlation within the text of scripture, right? And in those things, if God's convicting us to do something or God says something like, don't be a stumbling block to anybody else. And so I might be convicted to, let's say I, I, I'm convicted to not drink alcohol because I feel like if I drink alcohol, it could be a stumbling block to someone who struggles as, as an alcoholic. So that's conviction, right? And I think, I think the, the question that we have to ask ourselves is one, is our conviction consistent with God's word? Can we go back to God's word and see the principle in there? Two, when we talk to other Christians and voices that we trust, are they able to affirm it? And I think three, are we able to recognize what is conviction and what is core? I think that's so key. Like what is core truth of the scripture and the gospel? What are, what are creeds that we've, we've established so that we can better understand it as followers of Jesus Christ? And what are these conviction things? And when I have conviction to keep it in its right circle, to say, I believe that God has really called me to take this stand. I don't think that means that he's called everybody who's a follower of Jesus to take that stand. And to be willing to be okay with that, I think is really important. But you have to test your conviction against, up against mature Christians who also follow Jesus and listen to what they say, people that know you and know the scripture, and then also the scripture itself are the places to go. It, I'll, I'll share a quick example of this that uh, might be a little uncomfortable for me, maybe a little uncomfortable for you, but I think this is important for us. As I'm we excited to hear what you're going to say. Um, and it, it's related to the vaccine, to the COVID vaccine. Uh, I had hesitations about getting the COVID vaccine for a, for a while. Um, I thought that there was a lot of propaganda in the media, really just kind of making people afraid and pushing people to get this thing that I wasn't even totally sure had been really thoroughly tested. Everyone says it's safe, it's safe, it's safe, but nobody knows what's going to happen 10 years down the line. It's a totally new to, so I had a lot of hesitation about it because of that. And I thought, um, that it would be, it was a wise thing for me to wait until in my head, I was like, when it's CDC approved, then I can get it. And, you know, I had a conversation with Rosemary and I was convicted that um, by me not getting the vaccine, it severely hindered my impact with my neighbors around that, that live around us. People that are across the street, people that are next to us who are very afraid of the, who like, when co they come over to like pet our dog, they're like, oh, don't worry, I got my second dose. And in my head, I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, I still haven't gotten mine yet. But like, if I tell them, they're going to be like, you, like, we're never coming over here again. And so my conviction, God was like, look, if you can get this vaccine, you have a better opportunity to impact your neighbors for the kingdom. And that was a moment where, I, I, to be honest, I covered that situation with prayer. And I think with these convictions where we kind of go against the tide of what, uh, you know, a leader is saying for us or anything like that, those situations should be absolutely covered in prayer. And I realized that my, my conviction that I had was mostly selfish, selfishly motivated. 
And, and then what I saw is that God had a different motivation for me. When my motivation became the kingdom of God and making his kingdom greater, it led me to a different place. And I'm not saying that that's going to be the same for everyone, but I'm saying it's, it's, um, that's how it worked for me, where I, I had my conviction in, a, in not like this, but it was open-handed and was able to be, I gave God the chance to, to, to speak into that. And I think that's something that we all need to be able to do. And I appreciate you saying that. And I think, I think we have to be okay with the fact that good Christians disagree on things throughout history. Good Christians disagree. And, and that's a reality. And part of that is conviction. So how do we handle that among one another? When we allow it to divide ourselves, when we fully divide ourselves over conviction, I think we miss out on what God's calling us to. And so we have to be open to the reality that God is going to give different people different convictions because of their situation um, and, and trust that, that that's okay in some cases. Right. That's good. And actually, we just had another question that is, why does God give someone this conviction and the other person a different conviction? And I think you kind of touched on that is that God's positioned us all in different places to have different jobs in the kingdom. The, my favorite metaphor for the body of Christ, for the church, well, the, <laughs> I just gave it away punchline first. It's the body of Christ. My favorite metaphor for the church is the body of Christ. A body would be completely non-functional if we were all hands or if we were all ears. That would be just, it, it wouldn't work. But God gave some of us the, the different gifts. God gave some of us different uh, areas in which we live and different convictions in order to further the kingdom impact that we can have in the place where God has put us. I think really the difference in convictions should really be centered around that um, as, as we look across the church and to see a lot of diverse feelings. I would, I would agree with that. I think everyone's situation is unique. All right, so let's, let's pivot really quickly. Um, and there's so many questions. This I, thing is unbelievable, like updating unbelievable. <laughs> uh, these, are, these, are, these are really great questions. And I... I um, I know we're going to have a, a, a great time talking. <laughs> we're going to have a long time talking about this A long stuff time on Tuesday. Later, yeah. uh, because there's no chance we're going to be able to get to all this. So I'm sorry if we don't get to ask your question uh, this Sunday. But I wanted to ask... Uh, oh, this um, question about... Specifically with our government... Um, you know, what, there's, there's a lot of, of what ifs, I think, that we can be, when, when we start talking about this, there's a lot of what ifs. Well, what if our president was this? What if our president was of this, you know, religious persuasion? What if, uh, you know, people always, like, go back to Hitler. Like, what if Hitler? Like, how does this apply to if we were under Hitler's rule? And, and I think the one thing that I keep coming back to is, it's not Nero. Like, as bad as we think we might have it, it's not Nero. It's not that bad. Nero burned down half of a city and blamed it on the Christian. Like, it's, it's not as bad as we think. And so I, I, I get, there's no question there. Um, I guess the question is, I'm just, I just got up on a soapbox for a second. The, the question is, um, if, if we have a conviction that the government is leading people astray, how do we faithfully engage in the political sphere in a way that honors the emperor, 
but also is true to the other three things that Peter lists in those verses. I would say you have a pretty decent example in with Hitler. I would encourage you to take a look at how Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived and what he did and, and a lot of the church in Germany um, uh, you know, lost its voice because they aligned too early with Hitler and then when it went all crazy bad, they couldn't say anything because they were too aligned. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer stayed separate along with other people in the confessing church. And I'm not, I wouldn't say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer did everything perfectly, but I'm saying you do have an example there if that's your, if that's your wondering about that. Um, so what is the question again? If you really are convinced that the government is leading us astray, what do you do? Yeah. You do what God says to do. Do what God says to do. You love him. You love your neighbor. You make disciples. You honor everyone. You love the brotherhood. You fear him. Show graciousness and respect. And did you catch what Peter said in these verses? Jesus continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. And you know at the end of the day that God's the ultimate judge. I love, when I look at Jesus with, and I know we got, we're going to wrap this up. When I look at Jesus' interactions with government officials, in my mind, he says the same thing every single time. So you could go to when the Pharisees come to him and they say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they're trying to trip him up. And he says, whose picture is on the coin? And they said, it's Caesar's picture. And he said, give to Caesar what's Caesar and what God's is God's. And then one of my favorite ones in Luke chapter nine, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say, hey, Herod Antipas is looking for you. Herod Antipas is the, is the regional ruler and he's, he's the guy that beheaded John the Baptist, not a nice guy. And they said, hey, Herod Antipas is looking, is looking for you. And Jesus turns, this is one of my favorite Jesus moments. He turns and says, you go tell that fox. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you're not allowed to say that. That's a zinger. <laughs> uh, you go tell that fox that I'm going to heal and drive out demons today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I'll reach my goal, which I think is an allusion to his, his resurrection. And then he's standing in front of Pilate, right? And Pilate is saying, uh, are you king of the Jews? And he says, my kingdom's not of this world. And he said, don't you realize I have the authority to crucify you or let you go? And he says, you have no authority except that God gave it to you. And every single time Jesus says this, I'm up to something bigger than this. Like, why are you asking about paying taxes to Caesar? We're up to something bigger than this. Give your life to God and let's, let's do the bigger thing here. Like, you think Herod Antipas is going to stop this thing? Like, he beheaded John, it didn't stop. I'm going to keep doing what God's called me to do. And, and we're going to build the kingdom that I've come to build. And then in front of Pilate, He's a pilot. You, you have no authority to do anything here because what I'm doing is bigger than anything. And I think that's a perspective that we have to remember, right? When we get to heaven, it is all nations, all people, all tribes, all tongues. And I don't think there's categories in heaven. I think sometimes we live that way in our culture. Like, oh yeah, there'll be, there'll be like this section for America. There were, extra square feet in the mansion. Extra square feet in the mansion. Yeah. Uh, I don't Half see that. Bathroom. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. Like God's up to something bigger. So if we have the opportunity to influence our nation, to do what God says to do, take the opportunity to influence, do it in a respectful way, honor, honor, honor as we go about it, because we want to leave the door open to the bigger thing that God is doing. So don't hear us saying, no, we should never like forget, forget, uh, 
you know, civic, civic involvement. That's not what we're saying at all. We're saying go for it. But do it in a Christ-honoring way and do it with the mentality that, that, yeah, even if there is someone that comes and leads our nation the complete wrong direction, God's kingdom is still going to be being built. And that's our main job. That's our goal. That's our job as the church. And so we stay on task. We stay on mission regardless of who is in power. And, uh, one thing I think I would add to that, and we'll probably wrap it up here, is uh, the key the key word, I think, in a lot of this, and it's mentioned here in the text in First Peter, is the word trust. That even while these things were happening to Jesus, he continued to entrust himself to God, who judges justly. And I think a lot of times when we get fired up about injustice, which is, you know, real injustice and, and, and important for us, part of our call as followers of Jesus is to lift up the people who are oppressed. Uh, we get fired up about justice. We, we, we get out of step with God. We start going ahead of God. We say, God, you're going too slow and there's a problem over there. So I'm going to go. And we, 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 instead of trusting God's pace, I think that's the hardest thing for me is trusting God's pace of, of, of how things move. So I always want to go faster than that. Um, and the, the best example that I can think of when in terms of like political engagement as someone who loves God is the, is the story of Daniel. And I would really encourage you to, to spend some time in that book. And Daniel gets uh, taken out of his home country and, and put into a, a foreign nation where they have all kinds of rules where he would have to violate his conscience and the laws of the Jewish people. And instead of getting all fired up, ready to like you know, change the legislature and, and, you know, all this stuff. He asks for permission from the chief guard, the person who was his boss. He said, boss, do you think it would be okay instead of eating this food that I could eat vegetables and water? Because this food is not honoring to God and I want to honor God. He asked permission and he there's a lot of trust in God for him to do that. And God gives him favor with the chief priest to do it. He says, let's just do it as a, as a, cause I don't want you to get in trouble. Let's do it as an experiment for like a, a little while and see how I shape up. And if I, if you know, I'm getting too scrawny, like bring on the meat. But like Daniel's like this shining example of like perfect health. He's like a human specimen. And, and so God gives him that favor because he trusted in God. And Daniel rises through the ranks and works for the benefit of the nation that he's a part of that is not his home nation. And I, there's so much more to that story. And there is an experience where he has to go against what the, what the emperor says to follow God and God delivers him because he trusts in him. And so my encouragement is for all of us to trust that God's in control. He doesn't always work as fast as we want, and he doesn't always do exactly the thing that we want, but we can always trust him that his plan is better than ours. Um, so, We'll, we'll end there. We're going to invite the worship team back up to close or we're in there. Yeah. Let's, um, I'm going to invite our worship team to come back and this is what I'll, this is what I'll, I'll say. And, and, uh, would you stand with me? Would you stand with me as we, as we prepare to close this morning? Um, this is what I'll say. And I'm just going to, I'm going to pray. We've, we've kind of gone long these few weeks. We don't normally, our services don't normally last this long and we'll kind of get back to our normal rhythm next, next week. You know, as your pastor, and I went on sabbatical for a few weeks earlier this year, I really felt like this was the series that God was calling us to walk through, and these were the conversations that God was calling us to have. 
I don't think these are conversations that last for five weeks of us sitting on a panel while you text questions and that that's where they should stop. We need to figure out a way as a church to keep these things going. Um, and so let's, would you, would you join me in gathering together and keep having these conversations? There are people sitting next to you in the rows whose understanding of God's word and who, whose knowledge of what God might call us to do in this culture is off the charts. And we need to be talking to one another and asking these questions and together struggling to listen to God's voice. It's way better than listening to the endless media cycle tell us what we should be as Christians. Got to listen to what God says and tells us to be. Would you pray with me? And then I'll dismiss you as you go. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for who you are. God, help us to continue to listen to your voice, to learn from one another, and to be the people you call us to be. Pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our worship team is going to play, but I'm going to let you go. God bless you as you go this morning. Go in peace.